You're listening to a sermon from Grace Church, located in Frisco, Texas. Get to know Grace Church better by visiting our website at www.gracechurchfrisco.org. Today's speaker is Pastor Craig Cabanis. Uh, so if I haven't met you, my name is Craig, and I'm one of the pastors here, and uh, one of my responsibilities is to uh, teach God's Word on Sunday morning, and so I just want to say thank you for being here. I want to add my voice to Bob's at the beginning of the service and saying we're really grateful uh, that you're here to learn with us and to apply, and we are all learning. Uh, not, not any of us know very much when it comes to God. We are beginners, you, you know, and so we're trying to read God's Word and then see how it applies to us individually and as a people, and then ask for His help to be changed into uh, what He's called us to be. Uh, so today, I, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10, and uh, we'll look at that in a second. But I'm calling this an explosion of grace because I really don't know how to describe this passage of Scripture. Um, I, never feel, um, I never feel like I can adequately communicate what all is in a Bible verse or, or passage, but this one, we're going to spend eternity figuring this stuff out that we're going to be reading this morning. It is, it is glorious, glorious good news. And you know what it is? It's kind of a picture of a before and after. Now, I don't know about you, but I am a sucker for marketing uh, when it's a before and after. I mean, I've got to look at the picture, before and after what, really? And, you know, check out, see if I can identify the Photoshop uh, in the pictures of the before and after, you know. And, um, but I love those sorts of things. And I think we all innately love to see a before and after because there's something in our hearts that sort of celebrate the kind of situation when someone was in this bad condition uh, and then something happened and now they're in this great condition. And, and there's something that draws us to that. And I believe that's from the Lord because that's how the Lord works on us. We were in a bad condition and he does something for us and to us and in us that changes our condition. And that's called the work of grace. And so today's a before and after a before and after picture of what God does by grace. So here's what we're going to do. In these 10 verses, normally I read it all at once, but I'm going to go section by section a little more carefully today. So the first thing we're going to read is verses 1 through 3, and here's what I think the theme of verses 1 through 3 is. It's worse than you thought. It's worse than you thought. Verse 1, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But, God, well, no, I'm stopping there, sorry, but God, I couldn't, I was so excited to get on the next section, I couldn't even hold myself back. It's worse than you thought. I mean, when we read these words, I think we can be tempted to say, is it really this bad? I mean, Paul paints a, a bleak, depressing picture. He, he ain't pouring syrup on anybody's waffle today in this passage. This is dark. 
And notice he's speaking about all of us. He's speaking about humanity. When he says these things, he's not speaking about the worst of the worst. Like, okay, yeah, murderers, rapists, I believe, yeah, that's really bad. But he's speaking about all of us because in verse 4 he says, we were, I'm sorry, the end of verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is a picture of all humanity. So why does he give us this sort of bad news? Well, last week we saw that the the previous verses said this. It's a prayer that says, God, would you open my eyes so that I can see your power to me? And so here's the reality. We will never know the power of God to rescue us unless we know how badly we needed rescue. If we don't see how bad our need of rescue is, we'll never see the glory of the rescue that God provides for us in Christ. Now, he's not saying in this passage that people are worthless. He's not saying that they are not created in the image of God. He's, he's simply describing our natural condition apart from Christ. And this is what he says. You weren't spiritually weak. You weren't spiritually sick. You weren't spiritually struggling. You were dead. That's what he says, verse 1. You were dead in the transgressions and in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, if we are honest, I mean, many of us, certainly everyone in our culture, and many of us in the room may look at that and go, that's a tad strong. I mean, spiritually dead, like no life at all. Um, I'm going to read you a quote from John Stott, who's a commentator, and he explains this in a way that I think is very helpful. I hope it'll help you as much as it did me. Stott writes, The biblical statement about deadness of non-Christian people raises problems for many because it does not seem to square with the facts of everyday experience. Lots of people who make no Christian profession whatever who, who even repudiate Jesus Christ openly, appear to be very much alive. One has a vigorous body of an athlete, another the lively mind of a scholar, the third the vivacious personality of a film star. Are we to say that such people, if Christ has not saved them, are dead? Yes, indeed, we must and do say this very thing. For in the sphere which matters supremely, which is neither the body nor the mind nor the personality, but the soul, in the soul they have no life. And you can tell it. They are blind to the glory of Jesus Christ, deaf to the voice of the Holy Spirit. They have no love for God, no sensitive awareness of his personal reality, no leaping from their spirit towards him with the cry, Abba, Father, no longing for fellowship with his people. They are as unresponsive to God as a corpse. So we should not hesitate to affirm that a life without God, however physically fit and mentally alert the person may be, is a living death, and that those who live it are dead even while they are living. To affirm this paradox is to become aware of the basic tragedy of fallen human existence. It is that people who were created by God and for God should now be living without God. Indeed, that was our condition until the good shepherd found us. He's saying that, Paul is saying that there is no spiritual responsiveness to God. 
but it's worse than you thought. Because what he says next is that you were dead to God, but you were alive to something else, and so alive that you were captive. That's the idea. He doesn't use the word captive, but that's the idea behind this. We're dead, we're captive. What are we captive to? Well, he gives us three dominant influences that all humans are captive to. First of all, the world. He says in verse 2, in which you once walked following the course of this world. Now, when he says we followed the course of this world previously before knowing him, he's not talking about the earth. He's not talking about the grass and the trees like the earth. He's talking about the world, which describes something different. In this case, it describes culture without God, without reference to God. He's saying you lived in a system of attitudes, a system of habits, a mindset of the culture that surrounded you that was foreign to God, foreign to his world. The course of this world, when he said you followed the course of this world, what that means is you lived with the attitude and mindset of a world where sin against God appeared regular and normal, appealing, and at times uh, even, uh, you know, uh, celebrated. A world where sin is celebrated, but righteousness to God is viewed as odd and strange and fanatical and outside the norm. When you're in that world, that's the course of the world, and that's how you lived. He says, you were also captive, and this is strong, friends, to the devil. This is what he says. He says, uh, you followed not only the world, but the prince of the power of the air. Now, we've seen in this book already, there's a lot of talk about spiritual powers, Um, and dark spiritual forces, and the prince of those forces, the Bible calls Satan. He's saying your lives were moving in the direction of God's enemy, and that his spirit was at work. It says he's at work in the sons, verse 2, of sons of disobedience, that you were responsible for your actions, but there was spiritual powers influencing, tempting, and at times energizing people for evil. Then he says, it's not only that you were captive to the world and the devil, but to the flesh. Verse 3, among whom we all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind. So when he says flesh, he doesn't mean this, your skin, but it's, it's talking about our desires by nature, which are opposed to God. Desires which don't want to submit and celebrate the lordship of Jesus Christ, but want to go our own way. You were captive. See, we were created, the beginning of the Bible tells us we were created to be people that loved God and loved one another. So the original humans were created with a heart that oriented towards God. But after they rebelled in the garden, Adam and Eve, after they rebelled, then the heart becomes broken and focuses on itself so that now we are all by nature oriented to ourselves Not oriented to God, not oriented to our neighbor, that's what sin is, but oriented to ourselves. We displace God and we become the center of our own lives. So God is writing this glorious history which which will reflect his character and his beauty and his love and we we come against that. We interrupt that and say, no, we're going to be the hero of our own stories and life is about me. That's the power of the flesh. So you're captive to the world, he says, the devil, the flesh, uh, and it's worse than we thought because he says, because of all of that, well, you're condemned. And he says that in a way that's stark, we were by nature, verse 3, children of wrath. 
Our culture doesn't want to hear about a God of wrath. And many times the church doesn't want to hear about a God of wrath. We want to soften, kind of rub the sharp edges off that kind of language and go to the verses that talk about God's love, which are all over the Bible, but ignore the verses about God's judgment and his wrath, which are all over the Bible as well. (laughs) Really, the idea of God's wrath is this, that God is holy and perfect and righteous. And as a holy God, he must be opposed to evil and he must judge evil. And that's why it says children of wrath. It's like saying we are by nature condemned because God is good and a good God would not fail to judge injustice and sin and pride and selfishness and every evil thing. This is a strong diagnosis. You were dead, you were captive, you were condemned. Good morning and welcome to Grace Church. This is strong, this is strong language. But you know what? Let me tell you this. A true diagnosis is a gift. A false diagnosis, we're all basically good people who occasionally, that is, that lie is damning to people. To, to get an accurate, true diagnosis, no matter how hard it is to hear, is a gift. And I got one of those this summer. Um, thankfully, it wasn't a health diagnosis. But at the end of last year, between Christmas and New Year, we bought a uh, new car, got a new car for my wife, a uh, new-to-us car for my wife. And as far as cars go, we're not super car people, <clears throat> so this was probably the nicest car we had ever, we'd ever bought. So uh, and we plan to keep it for the long term, next 30 years or so. So at any rate, we got this car, and then this summer, it started to have some symptoms. And uh, so it was a used car, and it was just, it was out of warranty, you know, beyond the warranty, of course, and it starts to have some symptoms. So I take it to get it looked at, and the guy calls me up with the diagnosis. Now, I, that's, if you do that job, God bless you. We need a whole Sunday to pray for you. The guy who, or gal who calls people to tell them how much it's going to cost to fix their car, that's a tough job because nobody wants to talk to you because you're never calling and saying there's no problem at all, but just for bringing it in, we want to give you $500 cash to say we love you. Nobody does that. It's always bad news. So I remember where I was standing in the house in July when I got this phone call, and he said, well, I'm sorry to tell you this, but your car is completely ruined. You need a new engine. Now, I said, what, this car's three years old and, of course, just out of warranty. We bought, so we've owned it six months. It's three years old. There's no way I need a new engine. He said, yeah, you do. So <clears throat> he told me, I said, uh, <clears throat> how much does a new engine cost? He told me the number. It was a number that was higher than I thought the value of the whole vehicle at that point. So he said, that's the diagnosis, but here's the prescription. Now, if you get an accurate diagnosis, you can get a good prescription. I am friends with the service manager at the dealership you bought it from. Come get the vehicle, drive it directly back to where you bought it. I'm calling that guy ahead of time and preparing the way so that when you get in, you can talk to them about basically taking this vehicle back and giving you, making you whole. So it's a long story with some complications. But at anyway, that's exactly what happened. We drove back. We said, hey, look, this car is a wrecked engine. And they made us whole, gave us, we in essence took store credit for the value of what we purchased. And now we've got a different vehicle that's going great, at least a month in. Uh, but let's <laughs> pray for us on that one. Uh, so, but what if we'd gotten a bad diagnosis? Hey, all engines are good. 
You've got a good engine, it just occasionally does bad things. You've got a good engine, it just occasionally gives large puffs of white smoke out the tailpipe, but it's not a bad engine. You know, you've got a good engine, it just occasionally knocks, and well, one day, if you don't fix it, freeze up on you, but it's basically a good engine. You, you weren't sold a bad engine, you got a good engine. That would be a terrible disservice because I needed an accurate diagnosis to get a solution so that now I'm made new. Ginger and I are made new with a different car. And that's exactly what he does here. He gives this harsh diagnosis that is true so that now we get this glorious prescription starting in verse 4, but God. Yes, all that's true about humanity, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Jesus Christ. So the first section is, it's worse than you knew, but this section is, it's better than you hoped. It's better than you hoped for. Look at these words in this passage, what he says. He uses this kind of language, rich in mercy, great love, by grace, immeasurable riches of grace, kindness towards us. This is glorious good news so that we can appreciate the heart of God towards us in light of what our posture was towards him. This is like verses one through three are like a dark felt background. Verses four through seven are like a diamond that is displayed in a store. There's a contrast when they display a diamond. There's a dark background so that the light shines through the diamond and you can see the sparkle and the life of the diamond. And so this is a shiny diamond. Look at the sparkle of this passage that he made us alive together, it says, with Christ. He raised us up. He seated us with him. So in the verses we just read, we get the after. Look at how it contrasts with the before of verses one through three. So you were dead in sin, but now alive in Christ, he says. Uh, you, were, um, you, you were following the prince of the power of the air, but now you're seated with Christ. We've already found out in this book that being seated with Christ is being joined to him in the place where he has taken victory over all the powers of darkness through his death and resurrection. So he said, you used to follow the devil. Now in Christ, Christ reigns over the evil one and you are in Christ. You're seated with him. This is amazing news, amazing before and after. Um, he says, you were children of wrath. But now you have received the immeasurable grace for ages to come. So you were condemned. Now you're joined to his people. And for all eternity, God's going to be showing how wonderful is his grace because he has a people that are his people saved by him. Why does he do all of this? Well, it says here, because, verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us. This is God's motive. He loved us. And so he is rich in mercy, it says, verse 4, rich in mercy. Um, and he saves us because he is rich in mercy. See, mercy is doing for someone what they can't do for themselves. 
And this is what God does. At the beginning of Ephesians, we read, before time, he predestined to adopt us as his children. So before time, God already planned to adopt us. That's mercy, reaching an orphan and bringing that little one into a family. That's about doing for someone what they cannot do themselves. That's the kind of love God has shown to us. Last week, we saw that we are his inheritance, that God treasures and values his people, that he saves us for himself as, a, as an inheritance to himself. So this passage is showing us God's just amazing, indescribable love. And if we don't get the accurate diagnosis to begin with, we don't see how great his love is, that even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive in Christ. And why does he do all this? Verse 5 says, by grace you have been saved. It's by grace. What is grace? Well, that's what the whole chapter is about or this whole section is about. Grace is often defined as God's uh, undeserved favor or God's unmerited favor or, or that God accepts us because he chooses to be favorable to us. And that's all true. But as I'm saying here, it's better than you hoped for. It's better than that. Because it's not just God taking neutral people and, you know, accepting them. It's taking people that were following the enemy, that were living a self-oriented life in the flesh, uh, that were living according to the world's ideas which have rejected God. He took people that deserved his judgment, children of wrath. It's God's grace to those who deserve judgment. It's God's favor to those who have ju- uh, deserved his judgment. It's not you do your best and God will do the rest. It's you weren't even looking for God. It's not that you were drowning and God sort of reached out and pulled you out of the water and you kind of swam over your part. No, it's not that at all. Salvation is you were dead at the bottom of the sea and he dove down and revived you, made you alive with Christ and gave you new life. That is his grace. And it's better than we hoped for because it says here that in mercy, that, that it's all in mercy and that it's great, it's because of the great love with which he loved us. He wants us to see his love in all of this. You know, the Perhaps one of the deepest longings of the human heart is to be loved. But it's not to just be loved. It's to be known for who we really are and in light of who we are still accepted and loved. And that's what this passage says. He loved you. He loved us. He knew all of our sins. He knew all of our shortcomings. He knew all of our weaknesses. He knew everything. He knows every secret uh, that no one else knows. He knows every thought, everything we've done, everything we failed to do that he wanted us to do. He knows all of that. And he still loves us and gave his son for us. That is profound love that you know me and in spite of me, you love me. This is God's great grace. So it's better than you hoped for. And in verses 8 through 10, here's what I think we find out. It's bigger than you imagined. It's worse than you thought. It's better than you hoped for. And it's bigger than you imagined. Look at verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, when you walked in the building today, I don't know if you noticed this, but out front, if you look to the right, 
of the center doors um, engraved, etched in the stone, is the first part of this verse. That um, that uh, is first part of verse eight, rather. For by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing; it is the gift of God. And and one of the reasons that is there is that so every time we enter to corporate worship together like this, that we are reminded that to check our good works and our bad works at the door and realize that we come before God on the basis of what Christ has done for us by his grace. Not our reputation, not what we've done, not commending ourselves to God so that we don't walk in here condemned, we don't walk in here with God slightly mad at us and a little ticked off by the week we had, but we come in here and say, I am only here in, for one reason, by grace because of what you've done for me that we come aware of grace. We say that grace changes everything because grace is what God does, not what we do. And we receive what God does for us by faith. This is what he says. You have been saved. By grace, you've been saved through faith. Faith is believing, trusting that it is what God has done for us. It's receiving the gift of what he's done for us by dying on the cross, being buried, being raised to condemn uh, the enemy, to defeat death, so that now through faith we're joined with him as new people with our sins forgiven. This comes through faith. And he makes it really clear it is not about us. Grace means it's about God. It's not about us. Verse uh, 8 again, he says, this is not your own doing. You've been saved by grace, and if you don't get the point, it is not your own doing. You've got nothing to do with being right with God. It's not your own doing, and if that's not clear enough, it is the gift of God. Some of us aren't very good at receiving a gift. You know, somebody gets you something at Christmas or whatever, and you go, oh, first thought is not thank you. It's, I didn't get you anything. Why? Because we are wired to earn, to deserve, to pay our part to feel good about what we have done. We're not comfortable receiving something that we could never have provided for ourselves. So he's saying here, you didn't have anything to do with it. Receive the gift. It is his gift. It's not a result of works so that you cannot take credit for anything. It's not what you have done to receive new life. This is absolutely amazing. Uh, I receive an email weekly from a uh, counselor, author, pastor named Paul Tripp. And a couple weeks ago, I got this email and it just struck me. This is what he says about grace. He says, grace is a thunderous, expansive, powerful, and life-altering word. Life-altering word. Other than God, there is no more important word that the human mind can consider and the mouth could speak. Other than God, there's no more powerful word than grace, which is, I've read that and go, wow, it's great we didn't name this works church, but we went with grace. So there's the best word besides God. Grace is thunderous. Okay, the next slide. I'm sorry, I got you off there. Grace is the ultimate spiritual game changer. It is the one thing that has the power to change you and everything about you. There simply is nothing comparable to God's grace. Grace explodes. That's where I get the name of the sermon. Grace explodes into your life in a moment, but will occupy you for all eternity. You could dig into grace every day of your life and not reach the bottom of its power and glory. Grace is the bottomless, treasure-laden mine of divine help. Salvation is bigger than we imagined. And it's bigger than we imagined because of verse 10 as well. For... 
We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It's bigger than we thought because he not only made us alive in Christ, but he recreated us and brought us in to the new creation. And I'm going to show you where this is in the text. He says we are his workmanship. It's a work of a creator. Actually, the original work there is similar to the word poem. It's not exactly the word. But it's saying that we, this has all happened for us because God has, as a poet, has rewritten our lives. It is his workmanship. It's like a sculptor or a builder. God has done something in us, all of us as believers. We are his workmanship, created, there's the word. He created, you know, he did the creating and he created us in Christ Jesus. Now, obviously, he created us physically. We're spiritually dead, but now he has recreated us in Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus, you're not only brought from death to life, but God has done this work of creation, rewriting the story of your life, so that now he has uh, done this recreation of you in Jesus for good works. This is amazing. We are part of the new creation. Elsewhere in the Bible, it says if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a new creation. Now, this trips us up, right? He did this for good works, meaning us, not his good works, but ours. Doesn't that contradict verse 9? Verse 9 said, it's not of yourselves. You didn't do anything. It's a gift. Shut up and receive. That's not the word of God. That's me. Just the grace of God. He did it all. Now he's saying, and when he did it, he recreated you. It brought you into the new creation for good works. Don't those contradict? No, not at all. Because what he's saying here in verses 9 and 10, what he's saying is we are not saved by works, but we are saved for works. We're not saved by our good works, but we're recreated, brought into a new creation for new works. Good works. And this is bigger than many of us have imagined when we think about salvation. We may know verses 8 and 9, but we may have never made it down to verse 10. We've been reading about God's purpose and plan throughout this book, and and now we're finding out that we are actually included in his plan because he has There's a new creation. We're part of it. He created us with a new calling and a new purpose. So that we read back in chapter 1, verse 10, that he has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven, and things on earth. God is remaking. He's bringing back together all that's been uh, messed up and broken in the world. And so now we are part of his salvation work by doing the works that he created us to do for the love of God and for the love of our neighbor. What are the good works? Have you ever thought about that? What are the good works? Maybe you know this verse. What are the good works? Well, in studying this week, I found out there's really three views of what the good works are. And, and being a consummate consensus builder, I'm going to say that all three of them are right and in the Bible. So we don't have to pick. And if you pick just one, I think you miss out. So, so we're gonna do, I'm going to go bullseye, 
and then I'm going to telescope out. When you interpret the scripture, you need to look at the immediate context. So what, where, what is he talking about in context? We're created for good works. Well, the verse before, he's talked about works. So in the immediate context, he has something in mind. What is it? It's moral behavior. It's obedience to Jesus. It's following the word of God. In verse 9, he says, you can't follow the word of God and be moral uh, and make yourself right with God. But he recreated you, and now you can follow God and do works of obedience according to the Scripture, and he's going to empower you to do that. So that's the most narrow application. The broader application would be say, well, what does the book of Ephesians say? Instead of picking another book, what does the book of Ephesians say? Well, the book of Ephesians says in chapters 1 through 3, this is what God's done. In chapters 4 through 6, this is what we're supposed to do. In verse 9, this is what God's done. Verse 10, this is what we're supposed to do. So it would be fair to look at verses 4 through 6 and say, Paul probably has in mind some of those things. Unify, uh, forgive others, work and don't steal, uh, live a life of purity, uh, walk out your marriage this way, be a parent like this, be a child like this, be a worker like this, pray like this. So we could look there and say those are the works he has called us to. So that's out a little further. Or we could go, and all these are good, we could go even further and say, given the fact that in chapter 1, verse 1, he said that he's uniting all things in Christ, what are the all things of life? And because he's talking about creation, where do we find out about works in creation? Well, we go back to the beginning of the Bible, and we say, in the first creation, God created Adam and Eve with a purpose. He created them uh, to, to be fruitful and to multiply to take dominion over the earth and to subdue it. So in the original works that humans were given, it was to be vice regents, that is to under God's ultimate authority, to be responsible with various callings in life, that he gave them a responsibilities of what they were to do. In chapter 2, he spells it out a little bit more clearly. He puts them in a garden, and he tells them that they are to work it and to keep it. And that work, work, and keep have a different nuanced meaning. The idea of work kind of has to do with planting and developing the garden and growing. And the word keep has to do, as you can imagine, keep. It has to do with maintaining, uh, you know, servicing the garden and that, that sort of thing. So he created them with responsibilities to rule in the earth under him with a calling to create and to maintain for his glory and for the good of others. Why would I point to that? Because we're in a new creation. We have been created in Christ. He's done this work of creating. We now live in the new creation. So we walk out those same callings that he gave initially in a broken and fallen world with the power of Christ to do what he has called us to do. God's new creation in Christ, we walk out the good works that he has planned for us ahead of time. We're part of his purpose, his grand plan to take the broken world and put everything back together in Christ. And that's why I think all three of these observations are helpful. Let's go immediate verse before and say, I can't commend myself by a holy life, but God's empowered me and called me to live a holy life. Let's, let's mine verses four through six and say, how can I be faithful uh, as a worker, as a husband, as a child, if you're a child, how can I be faithful as a prayer in community? How can I be faithful to do all of these sorts of things? What does it look like? And then let's zoom out and say, what's the original created works of men and women to do? And what does that look like now that we are in a new creation?
all things he's bringing together and he's using his people in all of life to serve his purposes. In a commentary on this, uh, talking about this passage, author Mark Roberts writes the following when he's talking about all things that we talked about. He said, all things includes all things. I should write a book. If that's all he said, if you say that's great. All things includes all things. By all means, join the church. Do mission projects. Share the gospel with your colleagues at worth and so forth. I don't want to remove anything from that list of potential good works. That's interpretation one and probably two. Rather, I will want us to add things we might easily neglect. God's grace rewrites our stories, but also our new story features a life of good works broadly envisioned. The kind of good works God intended for human beings in creation, as well as those good works that contribute directly to the mission, growth, and health of the body of Christ. So the way we say that around here is there are good works in the gathered church. There are good works in the scattered church. There's good works of loving my Christian neighbor for the glory of God and helping one another point to him. There's, there's good work in what I do throughout the week for the glory of God and for the love of my neighbor there as well. So he's saying I don't minimize any of the works he's called us to, but let's have a broadly and visioned view of how the gospel affects our lives, the plan of God to bring salvation uh, through us as we are his body spread throughout. He fills the world through his people, the last passage taught us. By grace, he saved you for good works. And that's why Chrisley's story this morning was so helpful he brought us into a new creation and gave us works to do, gave us gifts and a wiring and abilities, given us works to do, given us some of us family. And, and so she connected all those dots beautifully in her interview there, where we saw in her her various callings from God being lived out by grace. She said that, I can't quote her exactly, but she said that the gospel in essence uh, causes me to view my work and all of my life as a calling to love God, uh, serve God, and love my neighbor, something like that. This is, this is the calling for us. You notice at the end of the video, there was this little script that said, all of life, all for Jesus, all by grace. That's really the heartbeat of verses 8 through 10. That, that's what 8 through 10 means. That would be a very fair interpretation of verses 8 through 10 as that, that we are to live all of life, all the all things of chapter 1, verse 10, all of life, all for Jesus. He brought us from death to life so that we may serve him as our Lord forever and all by grace, always remembering, I didn't do a thing to know him. He did it all. And now by grace, he's recreated me and giving me this glorious purpose of life so that everything I do can have meaning for his glory and for the good of others. I'm lived to, to be free of myself, not to live the world's mindset that I'm the center of the story, but my heart is now by grace to be turned inside out so that he is the center of the story and I get to honor him and, and love others by practically uh, serving them and all that I do in life. It's his new creation that he's given us wonderful works that are planned as we leave here today, wonderful works that he's called us to accomplish for his glory every day of the week. We come in on verse 8, we leave on verse 10. 
we keep all of it with us all the time. But you know what I'm saying. We come in with verse 8. We walk out to live out the good works he's called us to do. What a passage, friends. I mean, the human condition is far worse than we thought. His love is far better than we hoped. His grace towards us and now his purposes for us are much bigger than any of us imagined. God is putting the world back together in Jesus Christ, and by grace, he's prepared works for us to do, made alive in Christ. His workmanship created anew, empowered by the Spirit every day, a fresh set of opportunities to be called according to his purpose and to walk out his purpose, whether you are a food scientist, as we saw, or a student, or a retired grandma or a bomb at home, whatever you do, whoever you are, your before and after, man, it is, it's beyond what you imagined. The, the, what you, you were a living death. You were a spiritual zombie is what that means. And now you are a person with life and purpose, with eyes open to what he has done for you by grace. By grace we have been saved through faith. Grace, the greatest word aside for the name of God. We live in it. We're grateful for it. And now we are going to go into our rest of our week empowered by it. Let's pray. God, we thank you today that this good news is ours. Lord, our condition was worse than we knew. It was eternal condemnation, and we didn't know or care. But your love is better than we imagined. You took us in that condition and adopted us, loved us, gave your son for us. And now your purpose is for us. This salvation is bigger than we imagined, Lord. It's the forgiveness of sins, which is glorious, but it's a recreated heart and a recreated purpose in Christ with good works just laid out in front of us that you have ordained beforehand for us to walk in. Enable us, we pray, to walk in the works you've created for us with the people that we are connected with in the places that we live, work, and serve, and recreate. Lord, we just pray that that you would give us a fresh vision of the purposes of grace for our lives. Give us the joy and gratitude vision that only your grace brings. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Grace Church. To receive future messages, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or listen online by visiting our website at gracechurchfrisco.org.